Hello, I'm Stuart Craner and this is the Thinkers 50 podcast. Today, my guest is Andrew Kakabadze, professor at Henley Business School in the, in the UK. And one of the most prolific writers on governance, leadership and the role of boards over the last 20 or so years. Andrew, welcome. Thank you. I mean, you, you're amazing. You'll produce more. You're one of the few people that actually produce more books than, uh, than I have. Impossible, <laughs> absolutely impossible. Yeah, and your most recent book was the the success formula, which was, was really interesting as well. So, what what are the themes you think that unite your, your work? If you look at my work, it's at first glance seems too broad and contradictory because I've been dealing with leadership, management, strategy, governance on the one hand, namely institution, and politics, policy design, global issues on the other. However. All of the thinking started about 35 years ago when I was working for government and one or two corporations and I could not understand why the politics that I saw around me, which was upsetting strategy and upsetting relationships, was being ignored and in many ways was being poo-pooed. And it was interesting for me to see that what I was reading and being taught on the one hand, which is get the strategy right make your clear objectives uh, very evident, know which steps you're going to take, was being contradicted by all sorts of things happening in organisations which in one sense should not have been. But it happened so often, so that started the research. And what I found as a norm was, it's not the politics per se that's the issue, it's context. What is unique about Henley Business School or what is unique about any organization that really provides that extra value or kills it. And I was noticing that the behavioral patterns and manners of thinking and organization design that were taking place varied so much from one organization to the next that I could not see the value of the original 1920s econometric thinking from Chicago School of Economics, which basically has gone through every business school, which is your number one priority, get the strategy right. So I noticed there were two concepts in the marketplace, contextualization on the one hand, and the underlying philosophy behind the econometric view of Chicago, which is rationalization. If I can come up with that rational view, well thought through, it's evident how we move forward what I was witnessing, it was not evident how we move forward. So my research focused on contextualization. And really it focused on contextualization in two domains. How do we make the organization work, the institution? And does the same thinking apply to government and the nation state? And really that's all I've been doing all these last few years. And the result of all this is I've come now to reject most rationalist thinking as not only counterproductive, regretfully destructive. People are being taught to to think one way and they don't know how to apply it another way. Now, this has implications for any academic and researcher, which is, if you take my perspective, it is really very difficult to get published in the standard high-class journals because you do not follow a logical pattern. You can't fully... um, put forward the view that a statistical relational analysis will work. You cannot produce things down so you're only looking at particular things. In a contextualist perspective, you are looking at a a series of multiple influences on any one circumstance, but which vary from one place to the next. 
So most of my publications, as you rightly said, Stuart, were books. Because only the book could capture the complexity that was happening in all of these entities. I first started by looking at politics and trying to understand why political relationships arise. And what was so interesting in that was, um, in a sense I've provided a critique of America, but the political thinking arose in America in the 1950s. There was a lot of research conducted on the nature of communities and what is the political way of handling essentially multiple agendas. And a number of the 1960s thinkers in America then said, do you know these political local communities are basically like our corporations. They also have multiple agendas and they also have to reconcile different tensions and needs. So for about a period of 10 years, there was an upsurge in the politics of management, the politics in organizations, and why that is both a positive mindset and a skill. And I came to conclude that politics is simply the negotiation of the impossible to the possible. And it has some good bits and bad bits, but we should at least understand why so many people are doing this and what is some of the underlying reasoning. And then by the 1970s, the view emerged that politics is a black art. And there's a good reason why that view emerged, which is because it fundamentally goes against the whole strategic thinking that, has, that was, had emerged and become embedded in both business schools and consulting organizations. How can we talk about a team that's not pulling together? A team's pulled together to make the strategy work. What was I witnessing? Teams that were not only not pulling together, they were undermining each other as individuals. So the research then went from politics and it went to leadership. And we're trying to understand how leaders handle complexity. And it was then very interesting to see whether that thinking applied to policy, the, the government department, the nation state. And lo and behold, it did. So I spent a lot of my time trying to highlight and seeing if there is a pattern across different contexts, which seems to contradict what I've just said, that each context is unique. But I did try to see whether there was a pattern across each unique context, which could explain the skills needed to operate at senior strategic and policy levels, when the emphasis is not on the quality of the strategy or the policy, but on its implementation. And that's really the point at which I am now. Very few organizations have simply gone down because of a poor strategy. But most organizations have gone down because of strategy that was very badly implemented and nobody would talk about it. And, and, and do you think uh, that organizations over this period, organizations have actually improved? Have they become more, more efficient or better at tuning into context? Or The organizations that I've seen state that they are more efficient and one measure of this is the whole merger and acquisition uh, movement where essentially we bundle assets together and grow them bigger and hence in that sense grow greater complexity with the purpose being shareholder value. If we look at Germany for example in many ways the Germans have decided not to do that so the fundamental essence of Germany is that Mittelstand corporation which is essentially the family business mid-size who do not want to have a merger or an acquisition, but want to provide an excellent service to the community. And most of them do not want to exit the markets. They don't want to look for funding. Everything is within that family or community. 
So I have seen the argument on efficiency. What I witness is more inefficiencies. What I've also seen on the effectiveness side, which is that context side, is a lot of what I've been picking up in research and consulting, organizations have been forced into it. So if we go back to, in history, the National Westminster Bank, which was a merger of National and Westminster, I was involved with them. And up to the day that they were taken over by the um, uh, by Royal Bank of Scotland, National and Westminster, those divides still penetrated the NatWest Bank. And still they made a two billion uh, pound profit, 1999, the year the NatWest was taken over by RBS. And if we talk to the shareholders, that year the NatWest was the most profitable bank in the UK. So you ask the question, why would the shareholders sell the most prized banking asset in the UK? And the answer was because they knew that if a lot of these tensions and divisions were handled a lot better, that banking entity would actually make a greater profit and deal with its issues in a much better way. So I was noticing that contextualization was something that top managers and boards were forced into, and funnily enough, shareholders were using. When I spoke to so many shareholders, uh, especially the funds, about why do you sell this, or why did you buy these shares, or what were you trying to do? I met some of them in their offices, and instead of them showing me their figures, they pulled out cupboards of newspaper clippings, um, videos of TV presentations, uh, clippings of radio presentations, of the CEO, and the finance director, and the chairman. And they would revisit these every quarter, every four months, five months, and I found a lot of the better decisions around shares and money were based on the quality of their leaders to handle contingencies. It was a highly personalized perspective, but it wasn't how good this chairman or CEO was per se, it was how good they were in this organization right now. Don't, couldn't we, isn't the, isn't the reality that organizations by their very nature are in, inefficient and we should simply accept that? and go with the inefficiencies rather than what you're saying is companies trumpet themselves as efficient and in fact they're deluding themselves. And I think if you look at efficiency as a one-off, are you efficient or not, you are deluding yourself. I mean efficiency I think is just a continuous concept. As market demands change and as you look at your assets and which assets are valuable, which assets are not, which assets are contributing, you then come to a view about what you source in and out. Now, that sourcing in and out, I believe, is a better practice. What have we done? We outsource. And then the phrase that's emerged is outsourcing, which is only you get rid of those assets you believe you don't want. Things change, my friend. So efficiency and effectiveness are highly volatile concepts. And they do depend on the chairman, the CEOs, the top team's view on competitive advantage. And what is their value contribution? And next year that changes, and the year after that, that changes. So as we're looking at assets formally, which is how do we make the strategy work, we then got to look at the strengths of the organization and basically ask, how do we make the assets that we've got work better? And that's the contextualization bit. And we've now reached a point with mature markets where you can get a, a very impressive organization such as Volkswagen. And, I have to say their products are good. The R&D that goes into their products are very good. 
reaching a point where for some minor investment in emissions and saving on emissions, they have a scandal that's almost damaged the company irreparably. Now, perhaps 15 years ago, the market could have coped with that. But today, the value that an organization provides is on soft strategy. It is on reputation. It is on image. It is on pulling together and the feeling of pulling together or the culture we have created. And the various observers of organizations, shareholders being one, but the press and media being another, are deeply conscious of soft strategy. So I have to ask the question, why are we pushing hard strategy concepts so hard when the real competitive advantage in telling difference is soft strategy and the way leaders deal with unwelcome contingencies? Go back to what you said earlier about, about leaders. <coughs> so what you're saying is that leaders are at their most efficient when they're at one with the context of the organisation. They are the most efficient and effective, I should add that, so they know how to work that when they're at one with the context of the organization, but that is a fleeting concept. You're at one often for a short while, and then other things change. So being at Perhaps one- you need another leader then, when the context changes, you need a- You, you, may. you may need a new philosophy, uh, but you definitely need a leader who can determine what is the nature of the context that's now here, as opposed to the context that was previously. That thinking led me to the book entitled The Success Formula, which is basically nothing more than is there a pattern to high-performing companies across the world where they can engage with different challenges, different contingencies, most of the time well. So you cannot talk about excellence, it's they do it better than others. So there is a comparison there. And what did we find? There was. The interesting thing about those companies that engage superbly well is that they change their leaders least. They go to business schools least. They use search consultants least. So we have the typical John Lewis type of example, but then we have Caterpillar in the United States. We have Anglo-American major corporation, the Oppenheimer tradition. We have an organization that many people don't know that well, but it's a wonderful turnaround company in the city called Alvarez and Marcel, run by two Americans. Do you know what the two Americans did from the very first start? We won't exit the market. We're here to do a good job. You don't have to make a profit. You don't have to get the best financial deal, but be professional. They've grown faster than anybody else. They are the number one turnaround uh, focus for both American and British companies. Even the government uses them. So Alvarez and Marcel, dealing with a very hard-nosed business, ironically, have a John Lewis culture. Caterpillar and Anglo-American, totally shareholder value structured, have a John Lewis culture. And it goes around the emphasis that management really give to. Is it the strategy? And is it the vision and achieving it? Or is it permanently engaging with stakeholders in such a way that we have trust? And what we found from China to the US, it was engagement. You've talked in some of your other work about the ability of leaders to zoom in and zoom out, that being a really important skill. Can, can you explain what you mean by that? And it goes back to your question really, Stuart, about if the leaders really done all they can, is it time they moved out of the organisation? And the evidence says, well, not really. We keep on people a long time. 
And what we found with those people is that they have a capacity to zoom in, so go into detail, understand what's happening. Here we're talking about numbers, but also the culture understand this context, but to zoom out, which is a reflective capacity, to stand back and think. And really consider, please, what is the compelling argument that I, can, I must create to make sure that everybody understands what's happening and they have trust in my ability to determine what's happening. And so that zooming in, zooming out, both creating it in terms of time uh, as a skill, but also in terms of psychology, I can zoom out at the most difficult time and consider what's happening to me. I have the resilience to make that happen. And then I can zoom in with some new idea, new approach, new way of thinking that will excite people. We've talked about the business schools and we're sitting at uh, Henley Business School, which is a picturesque location by the River Thames, like so many of the business <coughs> schools, quite an impressive place. Uh, what, what is the role of business school, given that they've, tr they've championed a kind of rational approach to strategy, management, etc., throughout the last 50 years? That is the fundamental question, and it would not surprise me to find that there's going to be a culling of business schools. Um, I think there are too many suppliers at this moment in time. Um, most business schools now make their money by delivering on undergraduate programmes. So the actual business side of it, the doing of business, is almost dead. It's the delivery of particular specialist subjects. And you make most money on long programs, fundamentally with kids, 18, 19, 20 years old. So we do have a fundamental questioning about what is the role of the business school. I think when the business schools lost touch with that finesse in executive education, it's no longer just running a senior management program, but it's winning credibility with senior managers to come in, become involved with their concerns and problems. And also with the research that's taking place now with business schools, the current um, research exercises, which really are forcing the business schools to undertake academic research, which is highly focused and is not capture reality. The market has been handed over to the consulting companies. So I'm finding some excellent research being uh, conducted in the major consulting companies and they would be one of the first to tell you, we're not just doing this research to roll it out and get more business, we're doing this research to be, come up with an independent point of view. And in fact, I've just finished a conversation with PricewaterhouseCoopers on this. We want research to come up with that independent point of view. It doesn't matter what emerges, we will promote it. So I think you've asked a very good question. What's going to happen? I've noticed that those institutions that were really good at executive education one by one, they're falling away. Um, and I don't say this because I'm at Henley, but at least Henley is trying to push itself hard in this area, focusing perhaps more on personal development. So the coaching master's degree, the coaching PhD, and the, the whole emphasis on personal development. And I think that's making a difference in the marketplace. Um, Thunderbird, which is an excellent institution in the United States, uh, went bankrupt. But then it was taken over by Arizona State University and it's gone back to its former glory. So the number of business schools that you could genuinely say are deeply involved in the conduct of business, other than just strategy generation and statistics, are diminishing. And business schools are becoming teaching institutions for kids. Do we need them? What, the kids or the business schools? <laughs> we need the kids. <laughs> the, uh, um, so what gets you out of bed in the morning 
Andrew, I mean, you explained the, the, the development of your work and you've been incredibly prolific, as I've said. So what, what still excites you about this? What excites me is um, now applying a lot of the thinking to two levels. Uh, one is trying to come up with what is that spread of skills and competence and capabilities that really helps managers cope with some of these issues. And the second, funnily enough, is the nation state. Um, because we are in difficult circumstances. In Europe and the UK, there's little growth. We have a Brexit uh, situation. So we have a number of challenges. And the question that we face is, how do we help our politicians, our civil servants, uh, various other officers deal with contingencies when in fact they've been brought up with an administrative model and an almost old-fashioned political model? So I'm finding there are a number of places where some of the research that I've conducted really seems to um, hit a button. It hits, seems to hit a raw nerve. And people are wanting to learn more. And as I'm invited in, as they learn more, I learn more, I do more research, and so a database builds up. I think had I gone down the rationalist route, I would now be bored and probably would no longer be in this game. But what makes me feel good in the morning is people telling me the night before that I did something and it was valuable and they enjoyed the research and they enjoyed the intellectual stimulation, but they enjoyed being helped. And it's that helping now that I think really stimulates me. Andrew Kakabadzi, thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening. That was a Thinkers 50 podcast. Thinkers 50 podcasts are produced by KDH Creative.